0: The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, It is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what you have said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would be, would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who see you today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Awesome. Well, yeah, we are in Exodus 14 this morning, actually covering Exodus, uh, the, Exodus 13, verse 17, to, to chapter 15, verse 18. So again, a, a decent area of Bible text that we're covering this morning. Um, uh, this is what we're covering this morning is the crossing of the Red Sea. Israel have, have been freed from slavery and they are yet to really get out of Egypt and, and cross over the Red Sea. And this is one of those miracles that is, uh, one of those things, stories in the Bible that is one of the most famous scenes in the entire Bible. Like if you uh, have n- never been to church before, you're still probably going to be aware of this story of, of Moses and the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, God in the Red Sea for them. It's a famous story. It, it's up there with David and Goliath or Noah's Ark. About five weeks ago, uh, a buddy and I climbed Mount Biwa, and um, halfway up Mount Biwa, if you've climbed Mount Biwa, it's a pretty challenging climb, halfway up Mount Biwa, he had a pretty serious fall uh, on the mountain. Now, I'm not one, I'm not the kind of person who likes to exaggerate things, like I know some people who will say something like, you know, I've got a friend and she's afraid of birds, and she will say, if she saw a bird, she will say, I literally almost died. So I'm not one of those people, I know the meaning of the word literally, and I know the meaning of the word figuratively, and those are two different things. But my friend in this fall literally, literally almost died. It was a serious fall. He, he fell for about 12 meters, um, tumbling head over heels down, the, down this steep mountain um, on a very, very steep part of it. He's, a, he's not a small guy, he's kind of around my size, or quite a bit shorter than me, um, which I like to remind him of. Um, and he, he just slipped and fell and went backwards over and over. He, he went, did maybe three or four some, like back, backwards somersaults, and if it wasn't for uh, a bush that caught him, he would have just kept going, nothing would have stopped, and this bush caught him, and uh, it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. I'm still a little bit traumatized by it, uh, but he was fine. He, was, he, came, he stood up, and he had bruises and scratches and blood and all that kind of stuff, and he was okay. He was amazingly okay. Like the fact that he didn't break a neck or a bone or any, even sprain an ankle was truly, truly incredible. But we had this moment at that point where we asked the question, <clears throat> is this really worth it? Like, the, like, thinking of this, like the, the summit, the, the top of the mountain, we've heard it's really great and amazing, but is this really worth it? And we decided, yes, it was. He wanted to keep going, so I was like, man, if you want to keep going, we will. So we finished the mountain, and it was great, but we were very, very cautious the rest of the way up. But is this worth it is a question that we often ask when we come across a significant obstacle in our lives. We ask, is this worth it when the alarm goes off for an early morning run? It was was such a great idea the night before to set the alarm, right? Like, oh, I feel so great, I'm going to go for a run. And then our alarm goes off and it's 5 a.m. And 5 a.m. version of Jimmy wants to go back and punch 10 p.m. version of Jimmy in the face and say, what were you thinking? We ask, is this worth it when we're halfway up a mountain climb and someone stacks it and almost dies? We ask, is it worth it? The night before the exam or the night before the essay is due and we still have only just made it through the introduction and we're thinking to ourselves, is this career worth it? Do I really want to actually be a teacher? Do I really actually want to be a doctor anymore? Do I really want to go ahead with this course? Do I really want to actually do this? Like we start making these big questions, is this worth it? We ask, is this worth it when we're in the middle of a difficult season? and we lack the energy to move forward. And I think, if we can be honest for a moment, there are times where we ask, is this worth it of the path that God has us on? The pathway of discipleship is littered with trials and difficulties and afflictions. It's by no means an easy road, and we will likely find ourselves asking often, is this worth it? We might ask, is this worth it when we come face to face with the secular worldview around us? We might ask, is this worth it when our kids start to be treated differently because they go to church? We might might ask ourselves, is this worth it when the culture around us seems to be only increasingly hostile towards Christianity? Is this worth it? And today in Exodus, as we finish up our series this morning, God's people hit against a really significant obstacle and they ask, is this really worth it? God has rescued them. We saw this last week. Pharaoh sent them out. He drove them out of Egypt. And yet it's not long before their future is suddenly thrown into question and they ask this question, is this really worth it? And the answer that our text gives us this morning is what I'm going to call the main point as well. Here's the main point. Here's what I want you to take away from today. God is awesome. Look at what he's done for us. God is awesome. We can trust him with our future. God is awesome. God is awesome. Look what he's done for us. God is awesome. We can trust him with our future. God is awesome. We're, we're overviewing over Exodus 13, chapter, chapter 13, verse 17, to chapter 15, verse 18. And just to give you a broad uh, view of this, broad understanding of this passage, um, Pharaoh has just let the people of Israel go, and Israel um, are on their way, and they are following God on their way out of Egypt, on their way at this stage towards the Promised Land. <clears throat> And they are following God in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They are following the very real and very tangible presence of God. And there's this very little, there's this little verse at the end of chapter 13, which I didn't really pay attention to much in the past until this week, where it says, The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. That's a really wonderful, glorious little detail. God never left them. God never stopped leading them. Now, God led them to this little place near a town called Pihahiroth, in, um, in between Zephon and the Red Sea. Now, exactly where that location is, is either unknown or at least disputed. Uh, but we know at least that this position that they're in is not a good one. It looks like they don't really know where they're going because they're kind of stuck and the Red Sea is in their way. Meanwhile, in Egypt, Pharaoh and his officials start having deep regrets about the fact that they've just let their slaves go. And so it says that uh, Pharaoh assembled uh, 600 of his best chariots. Like, not just 600 chariots, 600 of his best chariots. And then it says, and then he he, he, uh, assembled the rest of the chariots to go and pursue and hunt down the Israelites. It's an elite military force, and it is expending its efforts to hunt down and recapture their former slaves. So with their backs against the Red Sea, the Israelites see the army approaching, and a panic ensues. They cry out to God and they complain to Moses. And, and this is where they ask that question, is this really worth it? Now, I'll we'll come back to that question in just a moment. Uh, God then instructs Moses to lift his staff and raise his hand over the Red Sea. And with that, the, God parts the Red Sea. A passageway is made within the ocean and the water stands up like walls on either side, firm like a dam on either side, And it says in chapter 15. Israel crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, and the Egyptians went in after them. And then once the Israelites were safe on the other side, God then instructed Moses to again raise his staff and lift his hand over the Red Sea, and it collapsed upon the Egyptians. The water came crashing down, and the entirety of Egypt's military force were wiped out in a moment. Then, in verse 31, it says... When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. So what once enslaved them was now not only behind them, but was now destroyed, lying dead on the shore. No chance of them ever being enslaved by the Egyptians again. And then, in chapter 15, Moses and the Israelites break out into song. They break out into worship. And, and we're going to finish today by looking at, that, at Exodus 15. This is what, uh, how we started our service this morning, reading out verses 1 to 18 of Exodus 15. Now, if you were to compare the song that Israel sings in Exodus 15 and the despair that Israel articulate or express in Exodus 14, there's a massive contrast, there's a a stark contrast between these two things. On the eastern side of the sea, so once they're out, once they're through the Red Sea, they come out and they're praising God, they're exalting God, it's wonderful, it's this great time of worship. But before they pass through the Red Sea, they are in despair. They're panicking, they're... They're bitter. They're even cynical. So reading from chapter 14, verse 11, it says, "'They said to Moses, "'Is it because there are no graves in Egypt "'that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? "'What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? "'Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? "'Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians.'" It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Can you see? Can you feel the cynicism? Can you feel the, the pessimism? Like they're almost making a joke of how ridiculous this, this is. Like, oh, Moses, was it just not enough graves in Egypt? You had, you, you had to bring us out here to die. Why didn't you just leave us where we were? Sure, we were miserable, but at least we were happy. In other words, was this really worth it? Was it really worth it that you brought us out to this? And we can feel like this sometimes, can't we? We can feel like this where we have a moment where we ask questions like this of God. And if you haven't had this moment yet, where you're really asking God, God, is following you really worth it? Just just wait, you'll get your turn. It might be that there's one massive thing in your life, one massive hurdle, one massive obstacle or it could be dozens or even hundreds of, of much smaller things and it's kind of like a wave after wave of difficulty and, and trials hit you and you come up and you barely get a chance to get another breath and then the next wave hits. And maybe you're wondering, is this really worth it? Maybe you're wondering, is God really worth it? This is the despair that Israel was experiencing Now, we've touched a little bit on this in our series in Exodus. Take notice of what they say in verse 12. They say, isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now that word serve there is the Hebrew word avad, and it is the word of choice used to describe the labor and the intensity of the slavery that Israel was experiencing at the hands of the Egyptians. It's the word, for, it's the word serve. It's the word we've been serving, enslaved to the Egyptians. However, it's also the same word that Moses uses whenever Moses says, let my people go so that they may worship, avad me. The point here is that they were serving the Egyptians. They were, they were essentially, uh, they were enslaved to them. They were there, the Egyptians were their masters and God was freeing them to serve him. This is why, we, and we've talked about this, a good summary of the, of the book of Exodus is freed to worship God. They weren't freed to be their own lords, their own masters. They gave that a red hot go in Exodus and then threw out and it just it ended terribly for them. Now God was freeing them to worship and serve him. He is the better king. He is the better master. He is the one who will take care of them. And so in verse 12, for them to say, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness, is akin to asking, is God really worth it? We used to serve the Egyptians and it was horrible, but now we're serving God and we're about to die. Is this really worth it? It's like they're saying, life was easier before this whole Yahweh nonsense. I mean, sure, they killed our baby boys. Sure, they enslaved us. Sure, uh, life was horrible. Sure, they would beat us and whip us and kill us without mercy. Sure, we never got a day off. Sure, we were dying. But at least we had food in our bellies. At least we had air in our lungs. At least we were still alive. And we might find ourselves having those same kind of thoughts. Sure, like we want to say life was easier before God. Sure, my standing before Him was one of condemnation, and I was bound to spend eternally in hell, but at least I got to spend my money how I wanted to. At least I didn't have to worry about sharing my faith with people around me. At least I didn't have to worry what people would think about me and about my, my views on certain topics and, and what the Bible teaches about that. See, what we're really saying at that moment is, I liked it better when I was in charge. Because when I was in charge, I got to do whatever I wanted. This is the position of Israel. So what does God have to say to Israel? What does Moses say to Israel? Look at his reply in verse 13. He says, "'Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet.'" There's lots in that. As I was preparing for this again last night, I was reading that thinking, man, we could just do a whole sermon just on that. So firstly, he says, don't be afraid. Whatever is going on right now, don't be afraid. Now, the command to not be afraid is much easier said than done, right? Like if someone says, don't be afraid, you can't just go, oh, okay, sure, flick a switch and now I'm not afraid. Like it's, We can't just do that. But this command, don't be afraid, occurs over and over and over again throughout Scripture. In fact, um, someone a little while ago told me that the command, don't be afraid, occurs 365 times in the Bible. One for each day of the week. One, one, one for each day of the year. And I was like, that's amazing. So I started doing the research for that, see if that was true. It's not true. <laughs> Sorry. But it does occur 146 times, that phrase. That's still a hell of a lot, Right? <laughs> So just in case you go, like, I searching for that. I, 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 maybe it is, I just couldn't find it. And I didn't, I didn't read the entire Bible this week to try and find the 365 times, just in case you were thinking oh, I was that studious. I'm not. Um, I just Googled it and read a few articles and found that it was 146. That being said, though, 146 times in the Bible, God commands us to not be afraid. It's a lot. Moses says, don't be afraid. But it's not just the command on its own. It has a basis. It has a foundation. He says, don't be afraid. God is going to save you. And so often when the Bible commands us to not be afraid, it comes with a reason. My favorite one of these is in Isaiah 41 verse 10. God says, do not fear, for I am with you. That's the reason. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Some of you need to hear that this morning. Isaiah 41:10, "Don't be afraid, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm your God. You're not your God. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you." Here in Exodus, the reason why God commands them to not be afraid is because they actually won't have to do anything. God's going to accomplish their salvation before them. This is why the next command is to stand firm. Don't panic. Don't flee. Don't run away. Don't try and fight back. Just stay put. Stand firm. This reminds me of Ephesians 6, where Paul tells Christians to put on the whole armor of God, that they may stand against the schemes of the evil one, of the the devil. I wonder how this would have played out for the Israelites at this moment. They're standing there, the desert's in front of them, the seas behind them, Hundreds, if not thousands of chariots charging towards them. Moses, what do we do? And he says, stay put. Don't fight, don't, don't flee, stay put. The third thing that Moses says to Israel is, be quiet. And I just love that. That's, that's the command. Just shush for a second. The idea here is for them to wait and see what God is about to do. Like what did our primary teachers say? You've got one mouth and two ears, so you should be doing double amount of listening. And my teachers used to say, like if you're, if you're talking, then you're not listening. It's kind of what's going on here. God's saying, hey, just be quiet and see the salvation that I'm about to accomplish. Pay attention to what I'm about to do. This is what God wants his people to do. Don't don't look at the charging enemy and, and conclude that this is the end of the story. Rather, get your eyes on what God is doing in this moment. Moses says, see the Lord's salvation. See it. Look at it. Pay attention. Open your eyes. It's the Lord's salvation. See the Lord's salvation. This is something that he has come to accomplish. He is coming to save them. The Exodus is about God saving his people. And it's see the Lord's uh, salvation that he will accomplish. It's not see the Lord's salvation that you have earned, or it's not see the, see the Lord's salvation that you could somehow merit, or that you have to work for. It's see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you. For you. Today. <laughs> Like, each of those deserves its own point. Then he says, for the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. The, the people who enslaved you, the people who carried those whips and you felt those whips, the people, you, you remember their voices, you remember the smell of their breath, you're never going to see them again. They're never going to be a problem for you ever again. You see, the Israelites needed to zoom out and see the full panorama of everything that God was doing. They needed to get their eyes on the Lord's salvation that he was accomplishing. And the message for us is the same. We need to get our eyes on the Lord's salvation that he accomplishes for us. This means getting our eyes and our minds fixed upon the good news of Jesus Christ. That God sent His Son, Jesus, to die in our place, to absorb our punishment that we deserved and to credit us with His righteousness that He alone earned. He credited us with that which we can never earn on our own and He offers that to us in the free gift of grace that we can receive by faith which means we come to God empty-handed saying, I've got nothing to offer. I've got nothing to give. I can't earn this. I can't merit this. This isn't an award for me for something that I have done. I I just heard, God, that you are saving people, and so I've come to get mine. Empty-handed, nothing to offer. That's what faith is, accepting the grace of Jesus Christ. I've been reading um, through Romans Lately, and I've been working through Romans 5 this week, and verse 2 says this incredible thing. It says we have also obtained access through Jesus by faith into this grace in which we stand. If you're in Jesus Christ, that means you stand in grace. Your foundation is grace. Your footing is grace. What gives you your stability in life is grace, the, the undeserved favor of God. And then he says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Our hope is, in this life is, is in something that we, we don't yet see, but we know to be a reality. Our hope is kind of like a Christmas present under the tree, and it's got our name on it. It's there. We know it's ours. We know we're going to get it. But we don't quite know what it is yet. We can't see it just yet. But we can see that it's there. We can see its shape. We can see its magnitude. And we know that a day will come when that will be ours. We will see it, and it will be ours fully. That's what hope is. It's an eager anticipation for something that we know is going to fully come to pass. It's going to be a full reality. And so Paul says our hope is the glory of God. Our hope is that God is going to glorify himself. That's what God does. And that he does so by the redemption of sinners. He does so by saving sinners from their sin and and redeeming them at the cost of His Son's life and bringing them into a relationship with Him and and making them more and more into His Son and bringing them into eternity with Him. That's what God's going to do. That's where our hope is, that God is going to do that. He's going to glorify Himself by saving us. And, And friends, we've got to zoom out and see the full panorama of the Lord's salvation that he is accomplishing for us, that he has accomplished through Jesus Christ. We've got to zoom out and see the big picture of what God is doing in our lives. For many of us, our hardest days are still in our future. Now, that might, that's, that's a tough thing for me to say, let alone hear that our hardest, many of us, the hardest days we'll ever experience are still in our future. And we might lose hope and we might ask, is this really worth it? The answer is yes. Because God is at work to achieve and accomplish something far bigger and grander than we could ever expect. This is why there's such a strong future aspect to Moses' command here the Israelites needed to zoom out and see the full gamut of everything that God was up to. They had just witnessed the ten plagues. They had just witnessed God's power. And against all odds, those who previously enslaved them were now funding their departure. They had ransacked, they they uh, they had taken money from the Egyptians on their way out. If God had done that for them, of course God was going to finish what he started. They needed to see the Lord's salvation, which he would accomplish. And getting clarity on what God has done for us in our past and what God has promised to to do for us in our future, that should have a bearing on today. That should frame the way that we handle today. If we lose sight of what God has done for us in our past and what God has promised us in the future, then we will despair of today. Trials and afflictions will come and we'll despair, we'll be crushed by it. But if we keep our our clear eyes on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God has already sent his son and died for our sins, and what he promises us for us in the future, then we will have no fear today. We will be able to stand firm today. And being silent before God, we will see what he is up to in our today. So how do we do that? How do we keep our eyes on what God has done and what God is going to do for us in the future? The answer, believe it or not, is worship. God freed his people to worship him, to serve him. Throughout this time, throughout the Exodus, God has flexed his power and displayed his glory so that they would know that he was God. And the final part of this comes just after they crossed the Red Sea. God instructed Moses to stretch out his hand, and the seas collapsed, and they watch what happens. It says from verse 28, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All, oh, sorry, of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. They had finally left Egypt. God had dealt with their enemies. And when they saw all of that, they worshipped God. And then we get to Exodus 15. And Israel starts to sing. Moses starts to sing. Miriam starts to sing. And Exodus 15 gives us the content of this worship. And we could sum these verses of Exodus 15 up with these following words God is awesome. Look at what he's done for us. God is awesome. We can trust him with our future. God is awesome. It's it's a song. And God is awesome is kind of like the chorus that gets repeated, although with different words each time. These, These five refrains. God is awesome. Look at what he's done. God is awesome. We can trust him with our future. God is awesome. So let's just read this together. Let's just have a look at this wonderful worship song, and I'm going to make some comments as we go. God is awesome. He says, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. As Israel stands on the eastern shores of the Red Sea, looking back at these turbulent waves as they died down, they recognize that God has become their salvation. When they had previously grumbled against God and they had rejected his salvation, they now realize that he has not only provided them with salvation, but he has also become their salvation. Friends, Jesus not only saves us, He is our salvation. He is our hope. He is the one we cling to. He is the one that we have a relationship with. Our hope is not just in what he's done for us, but our hope is in him. This is our God, and we will praise him. Our God is a warrior. He is the great I am. That is his name, and we will do well to continue in our lives to dwell upon the glory of God, how big and great God is. Then the Israelites, from verse 4, start to look at what, they, what God has done for them. He threw Pharaoh's chariots, chariots into the arm, and, sorry, and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw the sword. My hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like dead, like, like lead in the mighty waters. God destroyed Pharaoh and the Egyptians with one, in one moment, this elite, superpower military force. And this meant that Egypt no longer posed a threat to Israel. They no longer have to look over their shoulders or fear fear what might come from their past. And friends, because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in destroying death, and on the cross Jesus killed death, we don't have to look look over our shoulders at our sin. We don't have to look at the sin that we, we once did and that we even continue to struggle with, the sins that we continue to commit. Those things don't condemn us anymore because Jesus has overpowered them. Jesus has destroyed the power of sin and death in our lives. You don't have to fear sin. You don't have to fear what it, its condemnation against us. God, uh, Paul says this in Romans 8. He says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Friends, if you're in Jesus Christ, then that means that you right now stand on the eastern side of the Red Sea and your sin is like the Egyptians, corpses floating on the shore. Your sin no longer condemns you. Then it comes back to God as awesome. Lord, who is like you among the gods, who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. Now we can see in this section, they start talking, going from past tense to future tense here. But the key thing that I want to point out here is that God will lead them by his faithful love. Whatever you are facing this week, if you are in Christ, that means that you have been redeemed by Jesus at the cost of his life. And if that's you, you, you are assured that God is going to lead you. God is going to guide you. He's never going to leave you. How? With His faithful love. God's love is faithful towards us. Our love for God is not faithful. We are fickle. We, we, we go up and down. We're flipping. We're all over the place. God's love for us is faithful regardless of what is going on for us in that moment. Finally, oh, sorry, we can, sorry, next, we can trust him with our future. Verse 14: when the peoples hear, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the, the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you purchased pass by. You will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established the sanctuary." So, there's all these references to these different groups of people. And it's a, it, these are references to their very near future. It's to the Philistines, the Moabites, the Edomites, and the Canaanites. And what they're looking forward to at this stage is what God promised was going to happen to Abraham, when God promised to Abraham was going to happen to his people in Genesis 12 and 15. They come out of Egypt, they come out of uh, slavery, and they're on their way to Canaan, on the way to the promised land, and they're looking towards their future, saying, that, We know that actually the hardest days actually are ahead of us. Coming out of Egypt was one thing, but going into Canaan with the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Philistines, all of these people, that's going to be a huge task. But they're going to see the salvation of the Lord. They're going to see how God has saved us and they're going to be frozen in terror. Because God is part of the Red Sea, because God has flexed his arm, they're going to see that. And we've got to know that if God has already sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place and take the penalty for our sins, and if you send His Spirit to conform us into the likeness of Jesus, bit by bit, then we can be assured that God is going to finish the job. God is at work in your life. And there are trials and there are afflictions that are are part of that. And God is at work in your life, bit by bit, transforming you into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And you can trust God with your future because whatever tomorrow brings, whatever this afternoon brings, we can know, look at what God has done for us in our past. We can trust him with our future. Paul says this in Philippians 1.6. he says, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. For some of us, the hardest days that we will ever have to endure in our past. For others of us, those days are still in our future. Be sure of this. God is going to use those days for his glory and for your good. The afflictions and the trials that we walk through are not pointless. Finally, it ends with verse 18, with this last God is awesome. The Lord will reign forever and ever. There is no more Pharaoh. That Pharaoh was dead at the bottom of the sea. He thought he was a God. He was just a man, just an earthly king. The rulers of this world will pass away. Our God will reign forever and ever. And one day, we will see God face to face. That day is coming. It's guaranteed. God is going to glorify himself by bringing us into his presence. And we're going to see him face to face. We'll see our king face to face. Is God worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Whatever we're walking through at the moment, whatever we've got to walk through in our future, is God worth it? Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us,